Welcome everyone to the next instalment of our Belt Road Initiative from the Regions Lecture Series. Uh, my name is James Gethin Evans. I'm here at the Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies uh, with my co-conspirator, Dr. Nargis Casanova at the Davis Centre. Uh, we will be hosting and moderating today's panel on Connecting the World Island. What will China's peace cable bring to Pakistan and East Africa? Um, we're delighted to have today's event co-sponsored by four research centres here at Harvard University. Uh, the Davis Center, the Fairbank Center, the Lakshmi Matal and Family South Asia Institute and the Center for African Studies. Um, so the format for today's uh, panel is that we will hear from each speaker for about 10 minutes and then we'll move into a moderated Q&A. Uh, if you have questions for our speakers throughout the event, you can type them below in the chat on Zoom uh, or in the Q&A function if you are watching via our live stream on YouTube. Uh, so I will introduce our speakers uh, in the order in which they will present. Um, our first speaker is Dr. Roxana Fatamparast. Uh, she's an affiliate with the Center on Global Legal Transformation at Columbia Law School uh, and was recently a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's program on science, technology and society. Uh, her research examines the intersections of law, technology and global governance, and she holds the PhD in law from the University of Torino and a JD from UC Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. Our second speaker is Dr. Tayeb Safdar. He is a postdoctoral research center at the East Asia Center uh, and Development of, uh, Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. Uh, his research explores the shifting dynamics of South-South development cooperation in the shadow of the Belt Road Initiative, uh, and in particular along China's, uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, he has an MPhil and a PhD or a DPhil in Development Studies from the University of Cambridge. Um, our third speaker is Dr. Motolani Agbebi. Uh, she's a researcher and university teacher at the Faculty of Management and Business at the University of Tampere in Finland. Uh, her research interests are in Sino-African relations and their implication for Africa's socioeconomic development, uh, and in particular regarding human capital development and digital technology. Uh, she holds a doctoral degree in administrative sciences from Tepere University uh, and a master's degree from the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester in the UK. Um, so to kick things off, uh, I would like to invite Dr. Roxana Patamparas to start. Thank you for that introduction and thank you so much for having me here today. I'm going to share my screen now. Okay, great. So, and also just wanted to say also a quick thank you to the centers and institutes that are co-sponsoring the event today. Uh, and I'm really excited about this topic. So thanks for having me. So today I'm briefly going to discuss the significance of undersea cables generally as informed by my research. Uh, then I'm going to discuss some of the specific concerns around the political and economic implications of China's peace cable, which links uh, the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. And I'll offer some conclusions uh, by discussing the politics of technological infrastructures and the broader concerns that they raise. So why are undersea cables significant? Why should we care about this topic? Um, one reason is because uh, the entire digital economy and the global economy relies on them. 99% of global data moves through undersea cables, for example. 
And if their, if their usage is interrupted for any reason, the entire global economy would not be able to function. Um, an estimated $10 trillion in financial transfers are dependent upon them working. Undersea cables are critical infrastructure for the digital economy and the movement of capital around the world um, because they're what make global flows and exchanges of data possible and have enabled the growth of the digital economy. They're also critically important from a security perspective as they're subject to interception. This was seen in the context of the Edward Snowden revelations, for example, about the US and the UK's surveillance practices. Undersea cables have a long history and you can trace them as far back as the late 19th century. And since their very beginning, cables have been closely linked to the expansion of markets, commerce and trade in the context of 19th century globalization. Um, undersea cables that were developed uh, in the late 19th century were in, in during the age of empire um, were developed for the purposes of telegraphic communications. Telegraphic cables were placed underwater for security reasons because they were less susceptible to breakage and interception than overland wires. And they also required less territorial negotiations and concessions with other countries because the high seas are not subject to claims of state sovereignty under international law. Cables helped facilitate 19th century globalization by connecting world markets. Today, international institutions such as the International Telecommunication Union and the World Bank consider cables as playing a key role in economic development. The geographies of undersea cables today are also subject to path dependencies that were created by the initial overlays of cables for the telegraph that were motivated mostly by imperial ambitions at the time. And as undersea cable networks are typically constructed within already existing routes, they tend to reinforce existing global inequalities. The uneven geographies of cables affect the speeds and costs at which data travels around the world and the availability of information and communications technologies or ICTs in different parts of the world. As the digital economy today is increasingly becoming a significant part of global economic activity, these uneven geographies can have significant impacts on global economic distribution. This is also why there are so many projects today uh, in order to develop new cables, in order to connect areas of the world that are not already connected. Given their critical importance, cables are increasingly becoming subject to political contestations, as can be seen in recent disputes over Chinese undersea cables. The political battle under sea between the US and China mean that China has limited ability to build infrastructure in the territorial areas of the US and some areas of Europe, um, as well as some areas around Australia, there have been disputes. Um, and China is mostly locked out of those markets due to national security and surveillance concerns. China's Belt and Road Initiative, as well as its digital component called the Digital Silk Road, um, aim to build physical infrastructure that will help improve and build economic partnerships between China and other parts of the world. One of the distinguishing features of the Digital Silk Road and the Chinese approach to the expansion of digital infrastructures 
is the belief or the idea that individual countries should retain cyber or digital sovereignty. And this is essentially the notion that their governments ought to choose their own path of cyber development and that China will not interfere. Um, recipient countries may find that the Chinese digital development model is offering a welcome contrast to Western condition-based development models. Yet China is likely aware of the economic and national security importance of having control over and access to cables and communications. Some have questioned China's stance on cyber sovereignty in light of this initiative uh, and really see the digital Silk Road as an extension of Chinese sovereignty abroad. By, pro by providing digital infrastructures to many emerging economies in the context of this initiative, China is enacting a form of global data governance that scholars have argued uh, or have called the Beijing effect. This refers to how the construction, maintenance and operation of digital infrastructures by Chinese companies is transforming the conditions under which emerging economies can transition into a digital future. Undersea cables form a core part of the Digital Silk Road Initiative. And one significant project which we're discussing today is the Peace Cable, which uh, is a project that China is undertaking. This project aims to connect Pakistan with East, Af East Africa and Europe through cable connections that are controlled and developed by the partnership between the Chinese government and a consortium of corporations called the Hengtan Group which also includes uh, Huawei Marine as a subsidiary. In developing this digital infrastructure, one of the stated goals of this project is to help close the digital divide or the gap between those with access to ICT technologies and those without, and to improve the costs, the rates and prices of uh, telecommunications and the transfer of data, especially in emerging economies. The US government issued a report uh, late last year, so as part of uh, the Trump administration, where it expressed security concerns over this cable specifically because it touches several significant landing points, including Gwadar uh, in Pakistan, where China owns a port, and Djibouti in uh, East Africa, where China has its only overseas military base. Cables are thought to pose risks for cybersecurity and intelligence gathering, uh, and this was also a concern raised by the US government, for example. Um, they also pose risks uh, because of their dual use capability. Their underwater sensors can be used for scientific research and environmental monitoring in the oceans, but also can be used for surveillance purposes underwater. The Peace Cable will give China a very strong position for trading in tech-related services with countries it connects in the future as well. So I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time, but um, one of the ways that we should try to understand this project from a more broad perspective is that uh, also considering some of the research I've done into the historical aspects of these technologies and these infrastructures is that uh, asserting dominance over technological infrastructures is also a form of asserting dominance over political and economic domains. The linkages that are created by these cables are not only affecting internet speeds and costs, they also raise questions as to equitable distribution, governance and privacy, which also raise uh, further democratic questions such as 
who gets to decide where and how these infrastructures are developed and used, and who benefits and who is harmed by these infrastructures, um, whether they are, you know, whether they are existing in a certain uh, jurisdiction or an economy or non-existing. So what is important to consider in this uh, is not just considering how more economies around the world can be connected through cables, but understanding the unequal degree of control that various parties play over these infrastructures and the data that passes through them. Um, and also which visions of the internet and interconnection are embedded in these infrastructures. This is an area that is truly ripe for legal policy and technical interventions that can address how the digital infrastructures that are being built today will have long lasting implications for the future. Thank you and looking forward to the discussion. Wonderful, thank you, Roxana. And I think that's a, a great reinforcement of the uh, claim that you sort of need to repeat a lot, which is that digital infrastructure is physical infrastructure in many ways. Um, as a quick follow-up question, you mentioned the Hantong Group. Is that predominantly state financed or is there a combination of state and private financing going into that? I believe it's a combination of both. Um, so there's strong influence and partnership with the government. Um, I believe, and uh, I think this is the case with a lot of the telecom projects, where there is sort of this implication that the Chinese government is involved somehow, so. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Tayyip Safdal. Can you guys see my screen? So thank you very much, uh, Nargis and James, for inviting me. Thank you very much to all the Harvard centers for inviting me as well. Uh, so I'll be talking about the implications of the peace cable for Pakistan. Uh, I'm a postdoc scholar, as, as uh, James said, at the University of Virginia. And of course, Pakistan is a very important part of uh, the peace cable itself, because of course, the first uh, peace stands for Pakistan. So I'll just talk about a little bit about the technological, you know, sort of technical cooperation between, or the history of technical cooperation between Pakistan and China. Pakistan's been a very interesting market for many of these emerging uh, Chinese uh, technological giants. Uh, ZTE, which now does not have the same sort of clout as it used to have, uh, perhaps uh, in the in the early 2000s, one of the first international markets in which they actually undertook a project uh, was in Pakistan, and this was way back in 1998. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, while most firms do not have research centers within developing countries, uh, ZTE actually established an R&D center within uh, Pakistan in 2005 as well. Uh, of course, once ZTE sort of lost market share to Huawei, uh, things changed quite substantially, but it's interesting to note the historical sort of significance of this sort of technical cooperation between uh, Pakistan and China as well. Uh, so Roxana actually made my job easy because she showed uh, the fiber optic which is going to run throughout uh, Pakistan and will, and will eventually connect uh, with China first. The first part of this uh, fiber optic uh, which is called the China-Pakistan Fiber Optic Project has already been constructed. 
and this was planned as one of the early harvest projects under the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So this was under planning uh, from as early as uh, 2015, although the long-term plan of this China-Pakistan Economic Corridor was finalized in 2017. And within this, uh, this long-term plan, uh, one of the first projects as far as the digital infrastructure was concerned uh, was to connect uh, Islamabad uh, through uh, the northern areas of Pakistan all the way to the Khunjara Pass. Uh, which is uh, the border between Pakistan and China. Uh, construction of the first phase was undertaken by Huawei uh, and the special communication organization. And I'll come back to why this is important in the later part of my presentation as well. Uh, the second, and this it's not the, the end of this project, of course, because this is only up till Islamabad, which is the capital of Pakistan. Uh, this is going to run through right to the border, to, to the coast, uh, connecting Karachi and Gawadar ports as well, which once again, uh, Roxana showed in her uh, presentation as well. It's interesting to note the language around uh, the cables and how they've been developed and their impact on development as well. So this is uh, a screenshot which is taken from uh, the Twitter account of Asim Salim Bajwa, who's a retired uh, general and who headed Pakistan's uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor Authority as well. Uh, and this is at the Khunjara Pass, which is the border between uh, Pakistan and China. So you can see that the conditions over there are inhospitable. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's one of the highest borders in the world. Uh, and there's extreme weather, uh, you know, sort of uh, during the winters as well. Uh, so it's it's very interesting how this this sort of the language of of connectivity sort of um, plays out. And of course, uh, the General Bajwa over here uh, is highlighting how you know the, this this internal optic fiber is going to run through to uh, the coast as well. So coming back to peace, this is of course going to link to the peace cable, but it's not the peace cable. This is the fiber optic, which is going to run through Pakistan as well. Uh, as with the peace cable, the sub submarine uh, landing station, which is going to link to the wider peace cable has been a part of Pakistan's uh, or the government of Pakistan's plans at least since 2017. And the dual landing ports are going to be in Karachi and in Gawadar. Uh, what is interesting to note at this point in time is that uh, the the landing station in Karachi there is already it's already in the news so it's being built uh, but the landing station in Gawadar has not been discussed at at all so and we can talk about that further why that's the case uh, you know with, with all the other information that's that's going out there so what's the rationale for Pakistan uh, so I've divided it into three sort of threefold rationales as far as Pakistan is concerned the first is of course security. Uh, as a security-centric state, there is uh, a lot of fear as far as Pakistan's concerned or the military establishment within Pakistan's concerned that most of the undersea cables at this point in time run through India. Uh, and there are Indian firms that are part of the consortium uh, that, that operates these existing submarine cables. So therefore, that sort of fear plays out in, in them becoming partners as far as the peace cable is concerned, because they want to have alternate more secure in their perspective uh, links to the internet as compared to the ones that are already existing. There's, of course, an economic dimension to it as well. 
uh, the the existing undersea cables uh, are prone to disruptions. That there have been damages whereby Pakistan's uh, connection to the internet has been cut off. Uh, and Pakistan's, of course, as Roxana was pointing out, it's not one of the best connected uh, places as far as these undersea cables are concerned. Just to give put that into perspective, a country like Oman, which is much smaller, uh, has around 14 undersea cables, whereas Pakistan, on the other hand, uh, only has six. And the capacity to carry data uh, is quite limited as well. Similarly, if we look at internet usage or internet penetration within Pakistan, uh, there are various figures that are out there. Uh, I've chosen to use the World Development Indicators, uh, the World Bank's figures. So only 17% of the population within Pakistan is connected to the internet. Similarly, uh, access to high-speed broadband, that is very limited as far as Pakistan is concerned. Last but not the least is the governance rationale. And over here, once again, uh, if we look at figures such as the digital quality of life, Pakistan is ranked quite low. It's 97th in the world as per the current uh, data out of a sample of 110 countries. Uh, E-governance, despite all the slogans around E-governance and promoting E-governance, uh, remains largely limited. Uh, and the infrastructure to you know, sort of facilitate governance is quite limited as well. And again, just to put this into perspective, Pakistan has one of the greatest youth bulges in the world. So it's got a very young population which wants to connect to the internet and which wants to access you know, all of these uh, technologies as well. So there's a disjuncture between how governance sort of works on the ground uh, and between the aspirations of many of these young people as well. The impact, as Roxana was saying, of, of initiatives such as peace are likely to be multi-tiered, right? So it's not going to be only um, a very straight sort of a causal relationship between uh, the impact of this sort of connectivity uh, and, 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 you know, uh, the economy per se. Uh, on the one hand, from a more macro sort of a perspective, peace is likely to strengthen the relationship between Pakistan and China. Of course, Pakistan is one of the few countries in the world which can be called allies of China. Of course, China does not have the same uh, sort of ally uh, relationship as perhaps the United States. Uh, but it's also important to note that the relationship gives some agency to local actors because of the physical connectivity and because of the fact that there's a geographical border through which uh, these cables pass. Uh, therefore, we cannot only say that, you know, there's a, it, it is most definitely an asymmetric relationship between China and countries like Pakistan. However, because of the fact that there is a certain advantage that China has in terms of building this infrastructure uh, and bypassing the East China Sea in many ways as well. So there is that sort of dependence or that dependent relationship that sort of emerges through these sort of physical infrastructures uh, between China uh, and developing countries. Of course, as I said, it's extremely asymmetric, the relationship. However, one cannot discount the sort of agency that these sort of physical infrastructures give uh, to developing countries as well. And of course, as Roxana pointed out, uh, it is an emerging theater for great power competition as well, this digital space, which has not been very well covered uh, within much of the work on the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and as once again, Roxana pointed out, the internet infrastructure itself is susceptible to uh, 
uh, state surveillance. But as we've seen in the case of Snowden, I think Rosanna's made my job very easy. Uh, it's not only limited to authoritarian regimes like China, it's also open to uh, democratic regimes and their security, uh, you know, sort of uh, their security agencies as well. So now let's hone on, uh, hone into the national bit of it. Uh, what's the economic rationale or what's the likely uh, economic impact of peace? Uh, for one, there is likely to be an improvement in the quality and affordability of the internet. As I said, uh, the way that it's connected, uh, Pakistan's connected to this physical infrastructure uh, is lacking in terms of, you know, access uh, of, of the quality of, of connections. Uh, it, would contribute to an increase in IT exports. That's, of course, one of the major planks as far as the government of Pakistan is concerned to sort of uh, increase the export of IT services, which in 2020-21 uh, stood at around $2 billion. And one of the very important sort of factors or one of the things that the Pakistani state sort of, um, you know, uh, wants to uh, highlight at the international level is this geo, uh, you know, locational advantage that Pakistan enjoys. Uh, and that I think is again missing from the discussion on the digital Silk Road, uh, that Pakistan is located at this sort of a confluence where it could provide China an alternative to the South China Sea and the, the, the kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, problems over there, uh, but it could also link to Central Asia and could provide and, and could link uh, further with the digital sort of infrastructure within Central Asia as well. So that's an important part to note. Uh, and of course, as traffic passes through Pakistan, it could uh, offer an alternate uh, revenue stream as far as Pakistan's concerned. Governance, uh, as you know, the LTP sort of points out, uh, e-governance could contribute to an improvement in terms of the linkages between the state and the citizenry. Uh, there are already plans to, you know, sort of use this sort of infrastructure to improve e-governance. A lot of these are in the planning stages. So again, uh, whether these plans convert into actions on the ground is open to discussion. Uh, and there hasn't been a lot of progress as far as this e-governance is concerned. I think what, what I would like to spend most time is on the political aspect of it. Uh, Pakistan has been seen as a hybrid regime. Uh, Catherine Edene at Lockham has done a lot of work on highlighting how Pakistan is seen as a hybrid regime. Uh, and since 2018, the elections in 2018, uh, we've seen a regime which is more tilted towards the military and it's been called a quasi-military uh, regime as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, sort of linking to this increased role for the military within uh, policy making in Pakistan's concern is this increased state control uh, over the online space as well. There have been multiple instances where journalists, uh, media houses were not, uh, you know, sort of, were not, uh, were not pro-government in many ways. Uh, they've been harassed as well. And this, this sort of permeates into the online space as well, uh, where bloggers and, and Twitterati, they've been subjected to, uh, you know, sort of controls as well. So it's over here where we, where I think uh, this sort of, um, multi-tiered impact of, of initiatives like these come to the fore much more clearly. Uh, the SCO that I popped initially is, uh, is uh, headed by a serving major general of the Pakistan army. Uh, so again, uh, the sort of uh, links between uh, the military in Pakistan and these sort of uh, physical infrastructures is very interesting and that raises a host 
uh, of questions that we can need to you know sort of explore further as well. Uh, last but not the least, uh, we have a certain level of judicial activism within Pakistan as well, um, and and some have called have gone uh, so far as to call it uh, Banistan uh, because of the you know sort of uh, hyper judicial activism in terms of trying to control. Uh, the social space or the or the digital space. So it's not only the military that's trying to control it, but also judicial activism, which is trying to control um, the the sort of space, uh, the digital space as well. And last but not the least, uh, there's of course this danger uh, that there could be a reduction in individual freedoms and an increase in surveillance, because again, uh, with these controls. Uh, the state's ability to control or intrude into people's lives increases. Uh, and just on the final note, the, the safe city projects that Huawei has been undertaking throughout the world, uh, the biggest market, at least to, to my knowledge, uh, is Pakistan, where eight cities have already been uh, become a part of the safe cities project as well. Uh, so again, that raises a number of questions. It does, of course, address the security question, but it raises a number of other questions as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we will move on to our uh, third speaker, Motani Agbebi. Thanks, James. And um, thank you to the organizers for the invitation and for putting together this um, really important event. I'm really excited to be here and I'm looking forward to a great discussion. So Roxana already spoke in detail about the peace table and the technical aspects of it. So I'll speak more on the socioeconomic implications in relation to East Africa and the continent of Africa as a whole. Um, in this digital era, Africa's foremost priorities are to bridge the digital divide. According to the ITU, 29% of Africans, 18 to 24 year olds, mostly living in Sub-Saharan Africa, does not have access to a high-speed broadband connection and are excluded from the emerging digital economy. So bridging the digital divide within and between villages, countries, and continents is very crucial. Achieving the goal of universal access, participating in global digital economy, catalyzing growth of small and medium enterprises in the digital space, as well as improving productivity and services in various sectors, including agriculture, finance, and also enhancing the provision of education, healthcare with the use of technology is a priority for many African countries, including this East African countries that we're gonna be discussing where the host the peace cable. So also important in this digital era for Africa is having a robust and resilient connectivity infrastructure that has the ability to function during crisis such as um, the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the development of digital skills, technical capacities, and know-how. And in order to address these priorities, telecom infrastructures such as the Peace Submarine Cable we will be discussing is crucial. The Peace Cable, as Roxana mentioned, and Tayeb also talked about, is a 15,000-kilometer-long submarine cable system with landing points in East African countries of Djibouti, Somalia, Kenya, and also in other regions. The cable is supposedly gonna offer the shortest direct route from China to Europe and Africa. The peace cable addresses the digitalization priorities of these East African countries and 
neighboring countries in East Africa, as well as potentially um, countries in the West of Africa, as well as South Africa. According to the ITU, in infrastructure investment challenge is the main impediment to achieving the target of connecting all of humanity to broadband internet. So this is just to further highlight the, the, the importance of digital infrastructures. All of Africa's internet bandwidth is supplied by submarine cables, so terrestrial networks connected to submarine cables or, or satellites. Of the total bandwidth in sub-Saharan Africa by December 2018, 91% of that was supplied directly by submarine cables. And 8.6, about 8.6% of it was supplied by terrestrial cross-border networks connected to submarine cables. So submarine cables are, such as the piece, play a really crucial role in enabling international connectivity. And the additional connectivity or capacity that the peace cable brings would also increase Africa's integration to the world, as well as connect it to markets around the regions it passes through, facilitating participation in the global digital economy. Also, the peace cable will likely increase high-speed connectivity, and this is essential for businesses, consumers, governments, which have direct effects. And all of this have direct effects on the local economy and population. The GSMA, according to them, um, the doubling of mobile data usage increases the annual GDP per person by half a percentage point. Now that might seem like a really small number, but in terms of implications, it's huge. So residents will benefit from better quality services at reduced user charges, more reliable international communications, competitive prices for national and international connectivity. For every 10% increase in the penetration rate of telecom services leads to a significant interest in GDP in developing countries. So greater access will result in more efficient markets and have significant effects on economic activity in the East Africa region. In Kenya and Tanzania, for example, the launch of finance, financial services and micropayments via mobile phones reduced both the cost of banking services and the transactional burdens, leading to a reduction of unbanked population in each country. So leveraging this infrastructure could yield significant economic benefits for East African countries. Investments in telecom infrastructure most of us know are not silo investments, they trickle down to the local economy. So businesses, jobs are facilitated directly or indirectly by these investments. And increased digital connectivity will also have knockoff effects on the rest of the economy and benefits the whole tech ecosystem in these countries and enhancing access to education, for example, healthcare, e-government services, also strengthening the business environment as well. So the peace cable should ideally lead to a reduction in the cost of connectivity in, in the East African um, countries. Despite the fast rate of um, growth in internet and mobile markets in this region, broadband services, for example, in Djibouti remain relatively expensive and penetration in all market segments are low. So the cost of connectivity would also affect competitiveness of these countries and and their attractiveness as an investment location. So as foreign direct investment increases, so will the need for international and local enterprises to have stable and fast data connections. So while the region 
the East African region currently has like 24 sub-sea cables serving it. Since the pandemic, regional capacity has increased or demand for regional capacity has increased and demand for international bandwidth along, alongside it. And this is rising faster in Asia and Africa. So the capacity provided by the peace cable will potentially address this need. Also, the, um, the peace cable could potentially contribute to strengthening external competitiveness, as I said, um, in terms of investment, for indirect investment coming in, and also cement these key countries, if I look at the case of Djibouti and Kenya, as sites for international information exchange, as well as um, regional digital powerhouses in the region. So in terms of implications, um, some of the things I'm gonna talk about now, um, Roxana and Tayab already mentioned, the peace cable is, well, perhaps of significant interest to us here because of its connection to the digital silk road, which is essentially the technological or technology component of China's Belt and Road Initiative. I'll go even fast to say that we wouldn't be talking about cables at all, or any, we would, or why the, the main reason why we're talking about peace cable and not any other submarine cables serving the East African region is essentially because of this connection to China's digital silk road initiative. The continued provision of telecoms infrastructure in Africa by Chinese entities, whether as a financier, a builder, owner, or operator for the advances, China's broader goals related to the digital silk road. So as such, the peace cable also advances China's objectives with the DSR, which are, if I mention a few, to build a fully-fledged digital backbone with very little inputs from Western countries. So when we look at navigation systems, to cables, to networks, even to devices. Also, one of the objectives of the digital Silk Road is for China to become the world leader in providing digital connectivity solutions. Huawei Marine Network Technologies, which is involved in the peace cable, is the world's first submarine cable provider in the world. So that gives you an insight into how Chinese companies are doing generally in this, um, in this sector. Also, um, one of the objectives for the DSR is for China to exercise global tech influence by setting standards and norms and the more, um, the more services and um, and infrastructures provided by China, the more this also is like becoming concrete. Also, China is well, well on its way to meeting these objectives. And today, when you look at Africa, Chinese firms are very visible in, in Africa's technological, um, on, in Africa's telecommunication stack. So when we look at submarine cables, data centers, to working with telecom operators and ISPs, um, to consumer products such as handsets and tablets. China's economic engagement in the East Africa region is also quite extensive with Chinese entities heavily invested in physical infrastructures in the region. For example, the Mombasa Nairobi SGR in Kenya, the Ethiopia Djibouti Railway, the Dorale port in Djibouti. The region is also one of strategic import importance to China. Kenya is already at the forefront of technological innovation in that region. And it's often referred to as the Silicon Valley or Savannah of Africa. Djibouti on its own, its geographical position in straddling Asia and Europe makes it of commercial and naval importance to China. It was China's um, 
first overseas um, naval base. To be sure, this, um, the presence on dominance of Chinese firms in Africa's technological stack also places African countries in China's te technological sphere of interest, influence rather, and it further helps China to achieve its strategic aims in, in, in respect to the DSR initiative. So this, of course, raises like concerns and questions over geopolitical intentions of China's investment in both adding ad infrastructures and digital infrastructures in Africa. And as the world becomes more aware of the less desirable impacts of such technologies on privacy, data security, broader internet, internet governance, as well as what Chinese provision of such infrastructures could mean for civic liberties or civil liberties and political governance in the region. So projects such as the Peace Cable under the umbrella of the DSR undoubtedly present opportunities for participating countries in Africa. And I think also African countries should strategically leverage this infrastructures for socioeconomic benefits, while at the same time being cognizant to the potential risks posed by the reliance on technological or technology infrastructures built, financed or operated by Chinese entities and having plans perhaps to minimize the risk that might come up in the future in terms of the usage of this um, infrastructure. Um, so I'm gonna end there and I look forward to questions and the discussion to follow. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, there's a word that uh, Tayeb actually brought up, uh, which is the word agency, um, and a common theme throughout all of these presentations has been that uh, by China showing up in places that have previously lacked infrastructure investment, um, there's a diversity of actors who are now being brought into play in terms of who has agency to make decisions, um, bringing digital infrastructure, other infrastructure investments. Um, do you see that? as being a key factor in Africa and that by showing up, China is actually empowering a lot more people and a lot more actors to become involved in the digital space. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I would say that um, Tayeb was right to bring that up. Um, I think with China's involvement in the digital space, um, a lot more African, if we think about technology or FinTech sector, for example, there's more Africans getting in, involved in that space. There's more entrepreneurs and Chinese companies are actually even financing a lot of these companies or a lot of these entrepreneurs. So with China's involvement in Africa's technological space is giving a lot more opportunities to African entities. If we look at the peace cable, there's um, in Kenya, for example, there's an African data center that's just started um, run by Icolo a company that will be hosting like data centers connected to the peace cable. So it definitely gives more agency to African, um, African enterprises. And also when we think about entrepreneurship, there's been a lot of um, investments coming out of China financing like FinTech startups in Africa. So, yeah. Great, um, I will now hand it over to uh... Nagis Casanova, who has some follow-up questions. Thank you very much, James, um, and thank you, uh, thank you to the, the speakers for your um, great presentations. Um, I have uh, I have a set of questions, uh, and I want to start with the 
uh, with Roxana. Roxana, you mentioned the uh, the Beijing effect, and uh, that was coined by uh, by Matthew Airy, and uh, in and together with Thomas uh, Strines. And uh, in in their uh, in their paper on the Beijing effect, they uh, they argue that the data sovereignty is illusory for most developing uh, countries, as the power to govern data effectively is dependent on controlling all relevant digital infrastructure, much of which is increasingly being supplied by Chinese technology companies, which are in turn operating to varying degrees under the influence of the Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so first, would you agree with this argument? And uh, do you think it's sort of the, the sort of lost battle for, for developing countries to kind of try to have uh, to have data sovereignty given and it's sort of a necessary trade-off um, because you get all these benefits that we heard, that we heard about and actually I would uh, also invite uh, Tayap and um, Motolani to uh, to to respond to that too uh, I, the uh, well uh, Tayap and uh, to you I have um, I have a couple of Kind of small questions in addition to the one I just uh, I just uh, uh, asked. Uh, you mentioned the uh, this connection to Central Asia, and I'm from Central Asia, so I'm particularly interested uh, in uh, in 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 this bit. Um, but that would have to happen via Afghanistan, uh, and I was wondering if there are already projects. Um, underway or planned, uh, you know, for connecting Pakistan with Afghanistan, like any digital infrastructure. Uh, and uh, also, you mentioned uh, the Chinese safe city projects. Um, uh, and there are reports that they are not functioning well. Uh, the kind of the maintenance is a problem. And that raises the, 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 the issue of, uh, of capacity, right? Uh, can, um, can developing states uh, uh, manage uh, manage this, you know, high tech. Um, that's uh, that's sort of yeah. And uh, related uh, related to that, a question to Motolani, the capacity. You said that it's important it's important for African states to steer this development of uh, digital infrastructure so that it really benefits uh, benefits uh, the countries, uh, African countries. Uh, what is needed to develop this capacity? How do we shape this capacity to to steer? Uh, and let's start. Let's start with Roxana. Thank you, Nargis. That's a fantastic question. So, uh, yes, that um, article on the Beijing effect is a sort of response to Anu Bradford's uh, concept of the Brussels effect, where she talks about uh, the EU's regulatory leadership in the digital space, especially in other areas as well, in terms of um, how it's creating global effects and global standards to a certain extent. Um, and we can see that in the context of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is being ser serving as a model and many other jurisdictions are sort of copying that as a model for data protection regulation. Um, we're also seeing it in terms of how the EU is treating uh, artificial intelligence, Digital Services Act, Digital Markets Act. So it's, it's really sort of thought to be the leader in the forefront in that uh, regulatory space with global normative effects. Um, there's also the contrasting view of the United States role because it, it's thought that there are these three main dominant uh, players. There's the EU, the US and China in this digital space. 
the role of the U.S. is sort of a more, um, you could say, market-based, digital platform-led um, and corporations creating global normative effects to a certain extent through their terms of service and through their uh, decisions in terms of content moderation and in terms of how they treat data uh, and things like that. Uh, and then China's role in all this is thought to be very uh, prominent in terms of the digital infrastructure initiative, the digital Silk Road. And so the Beijing effect is referring to what are the normative effects of technological infrastructures themselves? And I think having a really good understanding of, of that sort of um, infrastructural regulation, which is another concept um, I think they use and is derived from Benedict Kingsbury, um, looking at the normative effects of infrastructures themselves uh, by also highlighting the relations, the social relations that infrastructures help create um, I think are really important first steps to trying to understand how who controls infrastructure has control over, um, you know, political and economic aspects of places that are using those infrastructures. On the other hand, I don't think it's um, a completely, you know, structural explanation and there's no hope and there's no age, no room for agency. Um, I just think that's a first step towards understanding what needs to be done to counter that. Um, Beijing effect, for example. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so on the first question, I think there is most definitely that sort of a question as far as countries like Pakistan are concerned where consumer rights themselves uh, aren't that well defined across the board. Um, and, and then when coupled with the state that, that wants to perhaps clamp down or control dissent within uh, their borders, then it becomes uh, a much more, uh, you know, sort of difficult sort of a thing or difficult issue to actually uh, counter. Uh, I, I, I don't think that the tools uh, of, of this sort of, so one of the things that, that is definitely there is in terms of, you know, sort of trying to look at this issue from a more security-centric perspective, but then the security-centric perspective over there is not from the perspective of the average consumer, right? It's not at the micro level. It's more at the nation-state level that, you know, if our traffic passes through India, then there's the chance that, you know, we could have surveillance. Uh, and by, uh, you know, becoming a part of this initiative, which bypasses India to a large extent, uh, we can ensure that our data uh, does not, you know, or it does not impinge on our view of national security. So I think that sort of a perspective is much more uh, present as far as strategic thinking within uh, the Pakistani state is concerned. Uh, the second part of your question or the second question that you asked regarding the connection with Afghanistan and with Central Asia beyond uh, I think that's that's the the main uh, sort of question as far as this initiative of regional connectivity is concerned, uh, because towards the east the relationship with India is of course problematic. So then, when we talk about regional connectivity from Pakistan, it's more towards um, you know the Central Asian states, and that's that that has to deal with the kind of uncertainty that's there in Afghanistan. I think there is an understanding within Pakistan that there has to be some sort of a solution that comes out uh, within Afghanistan and without dealing with those sort of problems on, on that front, this sort of 
uh, regional connectivity uh, becomes more of a dream. Uh, but I do think one of the things that the digital Silk Road actually does, uh, Nargis, is that it helps bypass Afghanistan as well. Uh, so you can actually go to China and then go towards Central Asia. So, so I think that is an advantage uh, which uh, this digital sort of a connectivity enjoys much more uh, than the more physical sort of uh, connections between Central Asia on the one hand and Pakistan uh, on the other hand. So I think that is something that, that is perhaps an advantage as far as this sort of connectivity is concerned. So Afghanistan is a very important part of this uh, regional connectivity puzzle. But I think the digital Silk Road is, is sort of helps bypass the problem to a certain extent. On the uh, Safe City project, uh, most definitely, and I think that's an experience that we've seen in developing countries throughout. It's not only the human capital which is missing, uh, but it's the term of uh, the, it's it's the ability of the state to actually invest in the recurring cost of many of these infrastructures as well, right? Uh, which creates problems, and we've seen this problem in multiple infrastructure projects in the global south. Um, not only under the BRI, but if you look at earlier incarnations of the BRI, you know when infrastructure investment was in fashion uh, within the global north. Uh, many of the physical brick and mortar uh, sort of projects that were created fell into disuse or disrepair because of the fact that the state just could not, uh, you know, sort of uh, invest in the recurring costs uh, of maintaining these facilities as well. Uh, so I think that's a major uh, problem as far as many of these projects uh, are concerned. Um, so, you know, that, and that's going to be an ongoing thing as far as, you know, these sort of projects are concerned. And of course, one of the ways in which they're trying to deal with it is by bringing in, at least in case of the peace cable, a private firm. So the idea is that the profit motive could help uh, ensure that these sort of uh, physical infrastructure, at least the landing stations, are uh, sort of taken uh, care of, right? Because there's revenue that's being generated by these private firms. So because of the profit motive, uh, the upkeep of these sort of physical infrastructures perhaps uh, would be better and it does not have to deal with the physical, with the fiscal sort of deficits that the state has in terms of expenditure. And thank you, Taya. Matolani? Yeah, thanks for your question, Nargis. Um, in, in terms of the data um, sovereignty, there are valid concerns there. And I think as many African countries don't even have extensive data protection laws like we have the GDPR in Europe, then it's even more of a concern as to how the government navigates this. Um, but with technology also, the thing is there's always almost a trade-off. Um, we've seen that in European countries, we've seen that also in America where the use of data and like the electionation of data, um, national security, this is just so complex. So there's always going to be a trade-off between security and also protecting people's data. But I think um, in Africa, African countries um, can really use a lot of oversight mechanisms in governance to really question when collaborating with Chinese companies or in terms of the infrastructures also to really look into what exposures there are with in regards to data and protecting personal personal information of um, their citizens. Also, I think there's a huge role for the civil society to play in this 
And there's been like a lot of outcry against like the safe city, smart city projects in some African countries, especially as regards to surveillance and where people's data or who's really handling people's data. So there's been some talk around that also. And I think um, civil society organizations can play a huge role in this. Um, in terms of how African governments can leverage this um, infrastructures to develop their capacity, I would say that partnerships between like um, Chinese companies investing in tech in Africa is really crucial. Um, in my research, I've seen in the case of Huawei, um, numerous governments actually, well, we have the Ethiopian government that partnered with um, ZTE when ZTE invested in the country and was um, developing um, infrastructures, backbone infrastructures in Ethiopia, but they were able to get the, the company to train about a, a, a hundred Ethiopian um, engineers. And also we see that this in Nigeria where the, the government has partnered with um, Chinese company Huawei in training programs, multiple training programs. So there's avenues to like leverage this for human capital development at least. And also when we think about, well, there are programs such as um, the Alibaba Foundation that trains African entrepreneurs also. So I think in terms of capacity building, there's a lot that can be done between Chinese companies and the African government. Obviously the African governments have to be very um, proactive with engaging with these companies to also demand certain things in terms of um, transfer of knowledge, in terms of training for local workers, and also in terms of um, even jobs, creating more local jobs and ensuring that like local, local people actually benefit from this investment. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, well, we received some questions. The first question is actually to you, Mutolani. Uh, you mentioned uh, about the risk in Sri Lanka, a Chinese financed Hamantota port um, resulted in this big debt and signed lease to China for 99 years. Do you see any such risk in any African countries? Uh, if yes, which countries are most, uh, most vulnerable? I'm muted, I'm muted. Well, the, the case of the Abantota port is, it's really disputed as to what happened there. And some will tell you China didn't just go and seize the port. That didn't happen and there's a lot of research in regards to that. So I, I don't particularly see that as a risk in, in African countries. Obviously, the high rate of debt that a lot of African countries have to China itself is, is risky and it's, it's a cause of um, concern for many African governments, I would say, and even citizens. For example, we, if you look at the case of Djibouti, where reportedly 70% of their GDP is worth in debt to China, that is not a good position to be in. And it does um, open the countries to certain vulnerabilities. And yeah, so I would say that I don't particularly see the case of Abantota port happening here because I don't even think it was a, a seizure of assets per se. However, I would say there's growing concern with the risk posed to um, high debt to China. And I think 
more African countries and citizens are looking into that now. And there was a big case in Nigeria where, um, <laughs> where citizens are taught that they've ceded sovereignty to China based on a loan that China has offered to Nigeria. However, it turned out not to be the case. But the more people question governments about what are these loan agreements all about? What are the conditionalities within the loan agreements? I think raising those questions are really important and would avoid such issues in future where a country might feel that having so much um, assets tied to the Chinese might put them in danger. Um, thank you. The next question goes to all the participants. Um, it's for Peter Franco Pen, and he says, that uh, I wonder if the panelists have a view on low altitude satellite data coverage and whether this creates new different problems that make us think about fixed data cables. Who wants to take this first? Roxana, maybe you can. Sure, um, I haven't studied um, this technology as in depth, so I, I don't have detailed uh, analysis ready for it, but I, a couple of points that come to mind are that um, they could be potentially beneficial for reaching uh, rural areas and landlocked areas because undersea cables obviously are connecting a lot of coastal areas um, and probably more urban areas and areas that are more developed. So it could be beneficial for those purposes, although it's not clear if they're intended to be going to those areas or to just serve you know, is, is, if it's a more expensive service, if it's intended to serve wealthier uh, people, things like that. That's, uh, to me, that's not clear yet. Um, and it is sort of a new developing technology. So it's yet to be seen what, what are some of the social implications of it. Um, but some of the interesting things I've seen from uh, scholarship, like of historians of technology, they often say that, you know, as there's always newer and newer technologies being developed, everybody's always focused on new and what's happening next and what's happening in the future. Um, but old, what, what are considered older technologies always serve as sort of backup for when the new technologies don't work or when they fail or when they're interrupted. So I don't think undersea cables are gonna be going away anytime soon or that these um, low altitude satellites will be rendering them obsolete uh, in the coming years, maybe down the line, I don't know, but I don't see that happening right now. And I think there's a strong reason why so many companies, uh, including also Google and Facebook, and then as we've seen also the Chinese telecom companies and the government, the Chinese government's involvement with that and efforts in creating these um, undersea cable links around the world, uh, because I think they're going to be essential also going forward as newer technologies develop as well. Thank you very much. If Kayapo uh, Mutolani have any thoughts on this? So I, I just uh, taking the cue from Roxana, actually, I think electricity is a brilliant uh, example of that. So even with the revolution in renewables, uh, the base load across the board is still dependent very much uh, on the older technologies like thermal, etc. Uh, so I do think, you know, that these uh, technologies do evolve, but because of cost implications, uh, because these are tested uh, technologies. So I think in most places which are recipients of technology, like developing countries, uh, Pakistan and in East Africa as well, uh, they would be dependent. So rather than the state in these countries themselves trying on these new technologies, 
they would be dependent on external stimuli to actually deploy many of these technologies. So I think if one looks at it from that perspective as well, uh, then it's likely that these more, more proven sort of technologies are much more acceptable and much more cost effective. Thank you, Atulani. Um, I think I'll just add to what Roxana said about the uses of um, satellites. They, ha they have um, quite, quite um, important usage in rural areas. And when you look, about, look at Africa, not all, all of Africa's population is obviously living in um, urban areas. And there's still a lot of people that are underserved and that live in rural areas. So these satellites actually provide um, a means of accessing or, or a means of connectivity for this um, population that live in rural areas. So I think this technologies coexist. China is still increasingly even investing in um, satellites. There's been collaboration with the Nigerian government on developing satellites and in other countries as well. So I, I think this technologies co coexist together and they all have uses in, in, in different aspects. So not only new and emerging technologies, but then satellites are also quite um, important for connectivity. Thank you. Um, the, our next question is uh, for Tayab. And uh, uh, it's, uh, okay, let me, let me read it. Pakistan's Minister of Planning, Asad Umar, recently spoke about Pakistan considering TikTok as a digital sovereignty issue rather than a threat from China or the US. So how bad is the situation in Pakistan as far as digital laws are concerned in terms of digital sovereignty issues or data protection laws? So TikTok's a very interesting uh, case study. You know, TikTok's been uh, banned multiple times within Pakistan as well uh, because of uh, not national security per se, but because of immoral content uh, that's been shared on uh, on uh, TikTok. Uh, so TikTok's in a very is a very interesting sort of a digital space to you know sort of look at uh, in terms of how the state sort of views its role and how it actually uh, tries to police uh, the digital space as well. And when when one talks about the state, it's not only uh, the pol political political side of it, but the judicial activism that I was talking about as well. So that plays out quite clearly in the case of these new. Um, you know, sort of uh, these apps like TikTok. Uh, I think on the digital sovereignty part of it, it's more so from what I've seen, uh, most of the the sort of comments or most of the, uh, the sort of discourse within Pakistan has been uh, on this sort of moral question around TikTok and, the, and its impact on morality within uh, Pakistan as well, as opposed to uh, digital sovereignty. Um, and I think this is an ongoing sort of pretension that, that the Pakistani state uh, being, uh, you know, uh, becoming an arbiter of what is moral and what's not uh, increasingly uh, sort of gets into. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a danger of, of that having an impact on how these new apps or these new technologies are, are sort of... Uh, um, are deployed in countries like Pakistan because again they're sources of investment uh, within many developing countries as well, right? Uh, so TikTok, the way that it operates, a lot of the people who generate these these this content, uh, they actually end up making money out of it as well. So this is part of the gig emerging gig economy. So for countries like Pakistan that are developing that have this problem in terms of you know high levels of absolute poverty, etc., uh, that sort of balance between 
uh, you know, implementing morality if that's what the state wants, uh, and uh, you know, sort of trying to open these new sources of uh, uh, of income for uh, low income groups. I think that there's a tension that that needs to uh, be resolved. Um, I think on the digital sovereignty bit, uh, I'm not really sure how that uh, sort of plays out, but I think uh, there are broader questions around uh, these sort of uh, new uh, emerging apps from China, like TikTok. Thank you. And let me pass the mic to James for the last question and wrapping up. Uh, last question to uh, the whole panel, which is building off something that Mothalani mentioned about the fact that we're only discussing undersea cables and this cable in particular because of its ties uh, to China. And then something that Roxana just said about how um, that we rely on older technologies. And actually, when we have new technologies, there can be a lot of hype around it. To what extent does the panel think that this peace cable is a hype project? And that actually, uh, when we think about it, there's a lot more there in terms of looking at trends over time or looking at other sources of technology. Uh, and that the hype around this cable is coming from its ties to China and the fact that it's seen as very new. Roxana, maybe we'll start with you on that one. Sure, that's a really great question. I'll have to give it some thought as well later. <laughs> but I think there's, you know, the tendency for a lot of the Western countries to um, pose China as this monolithic threat in every aspect in terms of you know, security, in terms of economic and political power and challenging the US's authority, especially in terms of if you look at um, sort of political economy and, and what's happening in the world in recent years. Um, so I think the digital is also a part of that. So China is posing a threat to uh, American and EU visions of uh, good governance of technology, of you know what kinds of values should be embedded in technology, um, and you know as there was we highlighted earlier, you know the democratic countries have also engaged in surveillance and interception practices. So it's not that there's just a one-sided um, threat in the world that everyone should be uh, afraid of. I mean. Um, China may be offering many beneficial things through its digital Silk Road, um, as Motolani also discussed and Tayab also discussed. Um, there are always risks and concerns as well uh, that should be considered. But I think, you know, given the locations that this cable touches, given that it is derived from, you know, from this digital Silk Road initiative, I think it is an important project to discuss um, without sort of falling into that hype uh, trap about China. Great. Uh, Tabd and uh, Motolani, do you have further thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I just, I, I agree with Roxana, you know, there is, an, there is a definite unmatched need within these uh, countries. And again, that's one of the points that's extremely important to understand, uh, that many of these countries are underserved by existing infrastructure, uh, they do not have the same sort of access as perhaps some of the more developed parts of the world. So China stepping in with uh, resources or Chinese firms trying to fill this gap, uh, most definitely, uh, you know, there is a need within these countries and that, that's the unmet need uh, which is being serviced. And as I tried to show in my, present, my presentation, there's a multi-tiered impact of many of these things, right? It's not a straight sort of causality that link to peace is going to 
lead to increased authoritarianism within countries in East Asia, Africa, or in Pakistan. So I think that nuance when things come to China uh, is missing from much of the debate. Uh, and that nuance needs to be brought in uh, because uh, these developing countries, as I've said, and my own research, you know, sort of shows in other infrastructure projects as well. Many of these developing countries, they've got agency in this relationship. So it's not as if they're uh, jumping onto every sort of project that China wants to, you know, sort of uh, undertake. Uh, there are a number of local actors uh, that sort of need to sign on to these projects before these projects actually work on the ground. Uh, and in the case of this peace cable, uh, it's the confluence of a number of different actors that comes together. It works for the state, it works for the private sector, um, and it works for you know other stakeholders that are important within uh, these particular political economies as well. So I think that's something that needs to be uh, understood and taken on board when looking at uh, projects like the peace or, or the BRI in general as well. I think it's great that I had mentioned um, the issue of agency again. Maybe it's a, it's a good place to like end this conversation because um, oftentimes we look at Africa as I say, um, China has imposed all of these infrastructures in Africa on African countries. That's usually not the case. There is, I mean, African countries can decide whether or not they want to take on board these technologies or whether or not they're going to go with Huawei for 5G provision or some other company for that. And the more we discuss this and leave out the leave out the choice that these countries have, the more it just doesn't very it doesn't look good for the countries. It looks as if it's a little patronizing if I should if I should use that word. And but then the, the main issue here is that there, there's lack of choice. If we're talking about China Chinese provision of tech infrastructure. China has done quite a lot in terms of providing infrastructure to African countries. And in most cases, um, China, Chinese companies and Chinese development banks and policy banks are the ones offering the, the finances for this infrastructure. But then outside of that, there's very little coming from the West. So that almost forces a lot of African countries to also go for what's on the ground if they are to, to you know, achieve achieve digital transformation if we want to use that word. So I think it's important to also talk about this lack of choice, lack of um, alternatives on the ground. And China, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately for African countries, China is providing this. China is an option that they can actually bank on. But I think the more we have uh, more alternatives on ground, the more choices countries have they could decide whether to go with Ericsson for 5G technology provision or for to Huawei, depending on what they need and how they see provision on that other side. And we have to also talk about costs. A lot of times Chinese companies come with services and equipment that are at a good price point for these countries. And when there's lack of alternatives, they will go for the ones that well, quality, it, it matches the quality that they expect and also the cost that they can afford. So I would say this to, these issues have to be looked at in, in this sense also, the lack of alternatives. And if there are more choices on the ground, perhaps African countries do not have to always depend on China for provision of certain infrastructures. Well, that seems to me like a, a perfect place to end our discussion today. We're at time. 
Um, I'd like to thank my, my co-organizer, Dr. Narvis Casanova, uh, and to Chris Martin and Danielle Wallner at the Davis Center for helping with logistics for today's event. Um, we'd like to thank our co-sponsors, the Davis Center, the Fairbank Center, the Lakshmi Matal and Family South Asia Institute, and the Center for African Studies here at Harvard, uh, and to our three fantastic speakers who I think everyone will agree have given a really brilliant overview of what is quite a complicated topic. Um, so Dr. Roxana Patamparas, Dr. Tayeb Safta, and Dr. Motolani Agbevi. Thank you very much all, and uh, we will soon be posting information about the next lecture in this series. Um, for now, happy Friday and happy Halloween. Thank you. Thank you.